BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast. We have got a great episode for you today. This is an epic episode celebrating one of the greatest rock managers of all time, Mr. Bill O'Coin. Today is his birthday and we are just celebrating all things Bill. He, he did so many great things with bands like Kiss, Billy Squire, Manowar, Lordy, uh, the list goes on and on. Of course, Billy Idol, instrumental in Billy Idol's career. And we're going to talk about all that stuff. And we're going to end today's episode with a vintage uh, Talking Metal interview that we did with Bill back in 2008. That's going to end the episode. And you got to stay tuned for that because it's, it's great. And it's uh, there's so much good stuff in it. It's actually been quoted in books, the, the Van Halen uh, book that... Um, Greg Renoff put together uses some quotes from this interview. It is historic, so stay tuned for that. And we're also going to hear from somebody who knew Bill like like no one else, and he's he's here with me now, Roman Fernandez. Roman, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Mark, and thank you very much for doing this, and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. You bet. And we're going to get into a, a in-depth conversation with you in just a bit about Mr. Bill Lacoin. But before we do that, you know, you are a guy who's been keeping Bill's name alive, keeping the awareness of Bill going. And can you just tell us a little bit about what what the main cause is here and who's possibly helping you with 
Billocoin's uh, awareness campaign, if you will? Well, you know, this this really kind of all got started um, in 2014 when it was first announced that um, Kiss was going to be inducted, which, as you know, was a huge surprise because most people thought, uh, including Bill, uh, thought that Kiss would never be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so when that was announced, uh, you, you know, people started saying, well, you know, is Bill getting inducted? And, hey, Bill should be inducted. And, of course, I, I felt that way. But, you know, as you might imagine, my opinion's very biased. And it was just kind of, you know, tossed around here and there. And it was about a year and a half ago that me and uh, a buddy of mine, who was actually actually a very good friend of Bill's and also used to be the manager for Enough's Enough. Um, oh, cool. That's a guy by the name of Tom Feely. Yeah. And Tom Feely and I got to talk and we said, yeah, you know, this, this, this could really be something. So we've kind of gone around uh, with the course of the last year and a half um, to different KISS expos uh, and different conventions. And we set up what we call the Bill Coin booth. And it's really just kind of an awareness campaign where people can sign a petition um, to raise awareness, to get Bill inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and, and lots of credit to Tom Feely, by the way, because like, you know, like, there's a lot of these conventions that go around um, all year long, and I can't make all of them. And Tom makes it a point to get to pretty much every one, and he's done them from, from New York to L.A. and in between, and went as far as Melbourne, Australia uh, this year uh, to do one. So I try to make it to as many as I can. But when I can't, um, he often goes in my place. So, so props to him for that. Cool. Are, are either of you guys going to be at the Atlanta Kiss Expo, which is coming up in oh, just about a month from now? I don't think we're going to be at that one. Okay. Um, right, I, I believe there's something else happening later in the year, but, okay. but I don't believe we're going to be at Atlanta. Cool. Well, Roman, I tell you what, I want to hear all about your your time with Bill. No one knew Bill better than you. You were his partner for many, many years. And let's uh, let's bring you back in just a bit and get into a, a true discussion about the great Bill Coin here on Talking Metal, one of the greatest rock managers of all time. And, you know, so many acts he, he worked with, but the two that probably are, are bigger than, than most are Kiss, of course, and Billy Idol, and I was just reading about uh, Bill's Bill in Billy Idol's book. Have you read Billy Idol's book? I have not. No. I've, I've read the excerpts, a couple of excerpts where he talks about Bill very eloquently and accurately. And I think actually it's it's some of the best pages I think that have been written about Bill. Yeah. Uh, so kudos to to Idol for that. Well, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a song right now. It's called White Wedding by Billy Idol. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to actually do what you just said. I'm going to read some pages out of Billy Idol's book for the Talking Metal listeners to hear Billy Idol in his own words, as read by me, talk about Bill Coin. And then we're going to come <laughs> back after that and we'll hear some more from from Roman, who is joining us on this show. And again, we'll end today's episode with the 2008 interview that John Ostrowski, aka Astronomy, and I did with Bill Coin in his office in, in New York City. So here we go, guys. Roman, please awesome. uh, come back with me in just a bit and we'll, we'll talk all about Bill. But right now, this is White Wedding by Billy Idol, followed by Billy Idol's words on Bill Coin from his autobiography. Here we go, guys. Hey, little 
about Bill Coyne throughout his book. Again, his book is called Dancing With Myself by Billy Idol, his autobiography. And this is just two pages from his book. It is page 138, 139, and 140. Actually, three pages. Got to do the math there. Three pages, yeah. So anyways, this is Billy Idol, in his own words, talking about Bill Coyne and Kiss a little bit. And again, he mentions Bill O'Coin throughout his book. So definitely do yourself a favor and read the whole thing. Again, the book is called Dancing With Myself by Billy Idol. Great, great read by a rock icon. And here we go. Page 138 through 140 of the book. Confident or not, I knew New York City was a place that could chew you up and spit you out as easily as a bullfrog catches a fly with its long tongue digesting it quickly before shitting out the unwanted part. Would I end up disposed of? It was definitely a possibility. 
Just because I had a couple of hits in England didn't mean the teeming masses of Americans would see anything in me. Given what happened on these shores to the Sex Pistols, the likelihood of this English punk being embraced stateside seemed pretty remote. I thought Johnny Rotten and company would blaze a trail, but they came back in tatters. Nobody else had really made a dent, though the Clash were still trying. Despite being aware of this ominous history, I felt I had a strong team around me. Chrysalis Records had some success with Blondie in the U.S. and seemed to know their business. My manager, Bill Coyne, had achieved massive success with KISS, so I was with people who had a track record. Bill Coyne was a true maverick, a wild man of rock and roll. He was a force of nature. He'd become my mentor. When he got excited about an artist, he loved the selling part of his job. He could step into a meeting and take a room full of people with no interest in me and turn them around. He'd tell label executives what they needed to do by giving them a new vision. Then he would tell them how to use their standing in the industry to contribute or even change popular culture in a positive way. He had them eating out of his hand. Then he would explain how I played into this vision. It was all going to be guaranteed success and fun to boot. He would become more animated until they were infected by his wild enthusiasm. You can't be afraid, he'd tell them. You gotta step it up. Billy is the real deal. By the time he was finished, they were true believers. Lit up like Christmas trees and promising Bill anything. The man's sales pitch was an incredible performance in and of itself. And I would have to go some distance to beat his energy in the boardroom with my own actions on stage. The execs in the room ended up raving too. That was Bill Coin from zero to 100 miles per hour in the span of a pitch meeting. At the time, Bill was a slender man in his mid-30s, about my height. His upper lip was adorned with a mustache, and he usually wore an amused look, especially when he was enthused about a subject. He would tell me Jim Morrison wasn't afraid to be himself. He told me about seeing the doors in New York in the 60s, when Jim let a member of the audience give him a blowjob on stage. This was a defining and liberating moment in Bill's life, encouraging him to accept the fact he was gay and realizing he had to be true to his own inner being. Bill loved this wild bravado in an artist. He would often talk to me about the kind of energy and feelings an audience would respond to. Billy, you gotta be wild and crazy, he would tell me, and I've never forgotten those words. I was actually committed to being true to myself, but now I was feeling liberated as well. I was pushing a boundary both physical and mental, where the emotions were channeled to reach a positive, uplifting experience for the audience and for me. I knew what he meant, and I saw the truth in his words. The next day, I jumped on a bus that took me near the 57th Street offices of Chrysalis Records, not far from where I was headed. Bill Coin's office. The people on the bus were quite amusing. I don't think even blasé. New Yorkers were used to seeing someone dressed in an English-style punk rock clothes, let alone someone as clad as I was, in skin-tight leather pants and a ripped t-shirt that revealed my chest and body, 
along with a new romantics teased cape slung around my shoulders over a leather jacket, bondage boots, and spiked bleach white hair. As I walked along 57th Street, the black guys on the corner would go, Silky baby, or where's the party? Or, punk rock don't stop, which happened to be a key line in Blondie's Rapture, but would also later give me the idea for the title of the EP I would record early the next year. These new greetings and sayings in all the different accents seemed fresh to me. Walking into a coin's office, I tried to act normal as I could. The fact is, I had arrived in New York suffering from serious heroin withdrawal. I had taken so much before I left. I had a bad skin reaction. Scabs covered my face, and I had an extreme case of constipation. Bill O'Coin was a bit shocked at how I looked, which was something, because he was a hard guy to shock. I did have a three-week supply of DF-118s, an H-substitute like methadone that was used for getting over the initial cold turkey reaction. The DFs kept me functioning, and some booze quelled most of the clammy sweats and general discomfort. I took speed to counteract how sick I felt and to keep up with the New York pace. I looked around a coin's giant office which had kiss doll puppets hanging from the walls. And I met Bill's secretary, who suggested an enema. Bill's second-in-command was a guy named Rick Alabriti, who suggested that I brush my hair down like Rick Springfield, pointing out how well he had done with his clean-cut image and hit Working Class Dog album. I'm not turning into David Cassidy, I said, I was sticking with the look I had. I wasn't starting all over to deny my style, but to make it stick. Punk was my roots, and I would celebrate those roots for the rest of my so-called career. I told myself it was weird, but fun to be challenged on my belief. Maybe I was naive, but I was confident that I knew what was right for me, and I wasn't going to let anybody else make decisions like that when it came to my career. The attitude was further cemented in my mind when later that week I saw Bo Diddley playing at Trax, a small club on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Despite feeling like crap, I spent the evening enjoying one of the greats of early rock and roll. Jesus, he was still playing that red box-shaped guitar from the 50s with its built-in sound effects which doubly empowered me not to change my own image. America would have to accept my style instead of the poodle-head look all the U.S. mainstream's bands of the early 80s had back then. Bill O'Coin kept telling me I should try out a guitarist by the name of Steve Stevens, who was leaving a band, the Fine Malibus. I met Steve in O'Coin's office, and we had a heartfelt discussion about rock and roll stardom the meaning of punk, and what I wanted to do with my music. My idea was to incorporate the energy and spirit of punk into many different musical settings. Steve responded well and said he'd help me put together a band. For the moment, we decided to take it one step at a time and see where it would all lead. I now had a lead on an exciting new collaborator, but I was still feeling relatively unsure about the musical direction to focus on next. 
This would change after one particular night that summer. I was missing Perry terribly. I decided to head out to a club hurrah on West 62nd Street to take my mind off of her and drown my sorrows. I entered the club and stood by the crowded bar. The place was jammed with people listening to a DJ. Several deep at the bar. It was hard to get a space. I was finally ordered to I was finally able to order a screwdriver and once served hung back with my drink to check out the not-so-bad-looking birds hanging around. The energy in the place was palatable, but nothing special. Suddenly, the DJ played Dancing With Myself. I watched in amazement at the previously crowded bar area empty and people literally throw themselves over tables, chairs, and couches to get to the dance floor. As the song continued, I was practically the only one left at the now empty bar. Jesus, that's it, I realized. I had the answer all the time. The dance beat we put into dancing with myself was right. The place was going nuts for it. I left the club excited and confident. If I could find something else with a beady drums for Keith Bossieret to produce. Anyways, you get the idea. I think he's kind of trailed off the Bill stuff here, but uh, yeah. Cool. So that's a little a little bit of Billy Idol's uh, mentions of Bill, which happened throughout his book, which I just read from, Dancing With Myself. Do yourself a favor and go pick that book up, especially if you're a Bill Coin fan. Hey guys, a little Billy Idol here on Talking Metal. You know, just on a side note, it's kind of random. I know we're celebrating Bill today, but do yourself a favor. Check out some of Steve Stevens' other work. I mean, that stuff he did with Vince Neil, some of that guitar playing is absolutely incredible. Um, I am a big fan of the Steve Stevens album that he did with Terry Bozio. Black Light Syndrome, it's called. And actually, I think he did two two albums. It was uh, uh, Bozio, Levin, Stevens. And yeah, Black Light Syndrome, that first record from 1997. Just love that. But Stevens, of course, played with Michael Jackson, Billy Idol, Vince Neil on that Exposed record, highly overlooked. I think he even did a little work on uh, Give Him Hell by Sebastian Bach. So much good stuff uh, Steve Stevens has given us through the years, not just with Billy Idol. So do yourself a favor and check out some more of his catalog. Uh, and today we are celebrating Bill Coin's birthday, December 29th. One of the greatest rock managers of all time. And uh, yeah, Bill Coin would have been t- today 74 years old. So happy 74th birthday to Billacoin. Rest in peace. 
the great Bill O'Coin. Stay tuned for our interview with Bill O'Coin from 2008 coming up soon. And uh, on this epic episode, right now we're going to get into my interview with Roman, who you heard from earlier in the podcast. He was Bill's partner for many years. He's going to tell us the whole story here. And I'll have that, uh, that picture of Bill in the pyramid up. On the show notes on TalkingRock.net or TalkingMetal.com, just uh, look for the show notes and you can make a a support. You can support the show while you're there. PayPal donations, use our Amazon links, and Patreon is happening. Anything you can do to support what we do here is greatly appreciated. I also wanted to give a plug to my new YouTube show, The Mark and Mitch Show. It's Mark Striegel and Mitch LaFon just talking rock on on our YouTube show. We just had a great discussion on Van Halen. Of course, we're talking Kiss a lot of the time. Maiden, uh, Ozzy, Guns N' Roses, you know, all our favorites. Metallica. So, yeah, check that out. The Mark and Mitch Show now on YouTube. All right, without further ado, here's one of my favorite Kiss songs, Sweet Pain, followed by my interview with Roman here on Talking Metal. My Mark Striegel of the Talking Metal Podcast, and calling in on the line, we have Roman Fernandez. Roman, how are you? Good, good, sir. How are you doing, Mark? I, I'm great, and it's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you because you were the longtime partner of one of the greatest rock and roll managers of all time. I mean, when you think of, you know, Colonel Parker, Peter Grant, Brian Epstein... Another name that fits right in there with those is, of course, Bill Acoin, mostly known for his work with Kiss and Billy Idol and, and so many others. And, and you were Bill's partner for a number of years. Can you talk a little bit about your, your history with Bill, how you guys first met, and how long were you a couple? Uh, we were together uh, for about 15 or 16 years. Um, um, I think either one of us was never really quite sure of the date. But it was it was around ninety four ninety five when we first met, and I was working with a, a band down here. I was actually playing in a band uh, down here in, in South Florida, in Miami. And he had flown down to check out the group, and he started working with us. And uh, we we probably were talking or working together for I'm going to guess anywhere between five or six months before we actually uh, became a couple. Right. And uh, eventually, I would I would leave the band after after a year or two, uh, in favor of, of following my own career, and, and in favor of, of pursuing a relationship with him, which 
which was a little bit weird. Um, you know, when you're in a band and you're dating the manager, right, uh, right. It tends to be a little bit strange. So, so that's kind of how things got started. And he was obviously based in New York at that time, but I believe eventually he ends up in Florida or I'm not sure if that's right. Did he eventually move to Florida? Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. He did. I, I think maybe, maybe close to a year after the time that we started seeing each other, um, I had a place on the beach uh, with my, my roommate, Kathy, and, uh, and he would come down and he'd, He'd spend you know a week at a time or whatever uh, at the apartment, and eventually, yeah, I think little by little, it's one of those things where you know he might bring a suitcase with some stuff, and then some of the stuff remains behind. And next trip, he brings more stuff, and eventually there's a toothbrush, and that's kind of that's right. kind of when you start feeling the deal, I guess. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, it was it was over a little bit of time, but it was probably about a year or a year and a half after we we first hooked up that he, he made the full-time move to, to Florida. And was he, he still maintaining an office in New York at that time? Because I know I interviewed Bill, I think it was like 2008 or something, and, and he had an office in Long Island City at that Long point. Long Island City. Yeah, no, in, in the beginning, he didn't. Um, in the beginning, you know, I, I think he was kind of out of the industry uh, for for quite a while, I, I, I'd heard, well, I'd heard at the time, but uh, in retrospect, I know that he was, he had interest in a couple of groups. Um, I think a couple in New York, certainly one in New York called uh, Gun Hill Road, um, and maybe another one out in L.A. And, and he would, from time to time, uh, before we met, I think, check out certain groups and maybe give advice. But I don't think he was. I don't think he was full time into it. It wasn't until he moved to South Florida, and uh, you know, I'm trying to recollect. But I, I'm guessing if we met around '94, '95, and he moved down around '96, '97, it was probably around 1998 that he actually opened an office in South Florida. Okay. Um, it was okay. a production company called Splash uh, that he really. I think for the first time in a while had a proper, um, you know, business operation with an office. Okay. So you guys first met and, and soon after started dating, we're talking mid nineties. Right. Right. Mid nineties. Okay. So he, at this point, I mean, we know he was incredibly successful with kiss, uh, in the, in the seventies and even into the, the early eighties. And then just, took on Billy Idol when Billy Idol was at the top of his career. Bill O'Coin was, was with Billy Idol for a lot of that time. What, what year did Bill kind of leave the, the music business? Cause you mentioned that he kind of went back into the music business at some point. Do you know what, what year he actually officially kind of walked away from the music business? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I, I think Billy Idol uh, the end of Billy Idol, probably well, the end of of the relationship between him and Idol, which came, of course, after after he and Kiss had been done, um, was probably in the mid eighties. Okay. Um, so I think shortly after that is probably when he walked away. So I I would call it maybe there was a ten year gap uh, in between, and I I know from obviously from being with Bill and, and speaking to friends after, after we lost him, um, that he was working on, on numerous projects, not necessarily 
music related, although there, there'd usually be some kind of music component. Um, but kind of had his hand in, I think, maybe some film developments, um, developing other other businesses that may actually be be outside of music altogether. Um, so he, he kind of had his hands in a couple of things, but never really, I think, full-time in music, not till, like I said, the, the mid-90s or so. Right, because he, he started... Uh, as a TV guy, I believe, right? And, and yeah, at least according yeah, to the, you know, Paul Stanley's autobiography. Yeah, which and, and I haven't read it, but it, it's true. And I, I think a lot about his TV career hasn't been brought to light, which is, which is pretty fascinating. Um, you know, Bill actually got his start on TV. Um, Ironically, it should have been right after he graduated uh, from Northeastern uh, University. Uh, he, he had gone to NBC, and uh, he, I think he had met with the president of NBC uh, some years prior to graduation, who had said to him, listen, when you graduate, come by, and we'll have a job here waiting for you. And wow. as the story goes, and this comes from his sister, Betty, who I'm very close to, um, apparently went to NBC and met with the president, I forget his name, Colonel something or the other at the time, and, um, and went up and said, hey, listen, you know, you, you're supposed to have a job for me. And the guy said, yeah, listen, we're going to put you in sales. And Bill turned it down because Bill wanted to be part of the creative process. He wanted to work in production. So he ended up turning down uh, what, I mean, who knows what a career at NBC might have, might have looked like for Bill, but he ended up then going to WGBH in Boston, um, and he interned over there as a cameraman working on the Julia Child show, uh, The French Chef. And that's really kind of where he wow. cut his teeth. And, uh, and ironically, the uh, lighting director over there was Kenny Anderson, who... I don't know if you're familiar, but Kenny Anderson would eventually be hired by uh, Rocksteady Productions okay. to become the production manager for Kiss. Wow. Okay. Um, well, yeah. So, so TV was was really a start, and he worked at the Julia Child show. Uh, eventually, Bill started his own production company. He uh, he did a ton of commercials. He was a Clio Award-winning uh, producer, uh, and his work uh, doing TV commercials is when he met. Uh, Joy Bogart at the time, okay. or actually Joy Bywitz. I'm sorry, Joy, oh, okay. I'm sorry, right. Joyce Bywitz at the time, and they became partners in this production company, and they they put on quite a few productions, including uh, the show that eventually would be um, Gene's calling card, if you will, was a uh, flip side. Uh, so yeah, Bill had a pretty interesting career in TV, and not to mention working on the on the Bobby Kennedy uh, presidential campaign. Wow. He did quite a bit of stuff uh, never before knew that. he. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. It's pretty remarkable, actually. A little known story that again most people don't know, and it it's, it seems uh, it seems almost uh, unbelievable at the time. But in 1973, I'm not sure if this was before Flipside or after Flipside. He developed a show called Saturday Night at the Movement. Now, if that rings a bell, it's because it was a show uh, which took, uh, was supposed to air on, on Saturday nights. It was meant to be live, and it was going to be kind of a variety show with, with uh, up-and-coming comics, wow. uh, musical guests, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, apparently he had pitched it to a bunch of stations, I guess to all the major networks, and it was turned down by everybody. And what, not a year or two later, uh, what comes on air but Saturday Night Live, which was a direct, let's call it a facsimile of what Saturday Night at the Movement was. And it's funny, you know, for for a long time, I thought this show was only um, theorized. Um, It turns out the actual pilot was shot um, wow. with a full cast, with a, with a musical guest, who I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure who the musical guest was, but somewhere out there is a pilot to Saturday Night at the Movement, which was, again, a precursor to Saturday Night Live. Wow. Wow. And yeah. I, I so wonder if... When you talk about being a visionary, I mean, that, I think that pretty much kind of puts everything into perspective. Yeah, it makes you wonder if, if some exec at NBC or, or, or somewhere had... Bill's idea in their mind and hmm, you know, kind you of gotta wonder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stranger you know. things have happened, so I wouldn't be surprised. Briefly, you mentioned he was involved with with Bobby Kennedy's campaign. Um, so was he out traveling with with uh, Senator Kennedy? Yes. Or he, yes. really? Wow. Okay. I actually I actually spoke to somebody at the production company uh, that was producing a series of, I think it was promo shorts for Bobby's campaign. And yeah, Bill was one of the camera guys, and he would travel on location wherever Bobby was and, um, and shot Bobby. Well, that's a terrible choice of words. Yeah. But you know what I mean? He, yeah. he, he was responsible for, um, for photographing or filming uh, Bobby Kennedy. Oh. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, he, he had quite a run. And you know, I I think Bill's Bill's primary passion was really TV and film. I think that's probably what he was destined to do, or I think that's what he thought he was destined to do, because uh, he was a very visual guy. Which, which you know, it's no accident that Kiss was the band that he ended up looking after, because Kiss was obviously a very visual band. Sure. Um, I mean, Kiss without the visuals would still be a great rock act. But it's that that visual dimension, I think, that made the band uh, larger than life. And I think Bill was very much attracted uh, to that. And uh, I think it came naturally for him to develop uh, a group of that ilk. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's so much great stuff in all the books uh, that the guys have written about, um, you know, Paul, Gene, Ace, and Peter have all written their own autobiographies. And honestly... You know they 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 bitch and complain about so many different people in the book, but off the top of my head, I really think they all speak highly of of Bill in in the books, especially even the Peter book. He he just loved Bill so much. Did did you ever have a chance to meet yeah. Peter? I mean, when Bill died, did did, did they all come down and? Yeah, well, I've actually I've actually met all the guys. Um, and and Peter in particular, and not to take anything away from the other guys, but I've become very close, not so much close with Peter. Peter and I are 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 good friends, but uh, me and Gigi uh, are very very close. And Peter in particular has been extremely vocal uh, about Bill's hand in Kiss and what what Bill meant to uh, to Peter. Um, so yeah, he's he's been a great great advocate uh, of Bill's, 
And and I know I know Paul and Gene and Ace uh, have had great words to say about Bill as well. Uh, but but Peter and Peter's camp is the one that I'm probably closest to. And yeah, he's he's been uber uber supportive as as Gigi. So right. much Peter's much wife, props Gigi. to those guys. Yeah. And when when you you started dating Bill and had well throughout your relationship. And if this is too personal, you're you're welcome to pass on it. But w- w- did he did he bring up the past a lot? Did he talk about his his time as as a manager of of Kiss and Billy Idol? No, you know, listen, that's that's actually a great question, and I'm and I'm I'm pretty candid about that stuff. Sure. <clears throat> Look at when 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 I was starting in in the band that Bill was was flying down to look after. Um, we were into our second gig. And I, and I have known these guys in the band for for years. We had jammed together in our garages and stuff. And um, but it was only the second night that the band was really together, or really the, the our second gig. We had two gigs back to back when we first started out. And Bill came to the first and the second gig. And I remember uh, Derek Cintron, who was really the the leader of the group and okay. uh, a longtime buddy of mine who said, listen, we've got this manager coming to see us, Bill O'Coin, and I didn't know who Bill O'Coin was, partly because I, w- I was never a huge KISS fan. I didn't grow up on KISS. Um, so I was completely clueless as to who this guy was, and I, I thought I'd do a little bit of research. And back then we didn't have computers. Right. Uh, so I had to go to the library and pull microfiche out and, and go looking, you know, looking yeah. for old uh, news stories on Bill. And and so I learned a little bit about him that way, and... and the very, I'd say the the very beginning, the first few months that we were working together, a kiss never really came up, at least not not that I can recall. Um, and it wasn't really for a while. Bill Bill didn't really talk about the past very much, and I I've never been very interested in the past as it pertains to Bill or 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 myself. I'm not very nostalgic that way. Okay. I, I like to be more concerned about the present and the future. Um, so, so Bill didn't bring that stuff up when he and I were alone. There were a few times, uh, there were a few times that I would ask and I'd have, you know, um, I'd have legitimate questions out of curiosity or whatnot. Um, but it was mostly, he mostly would talk about KISS when we were in a group setting, either with my friends or his friends, or if we were with fans, uh, that, that the KISS equation would, would come up. And then he'd, you know, he'd certainly, uh, you know, um, whatever answer, whatever questions were asked. But if it was just the two of us, like over dinner or whatever, um, not really. He, he right. would speak a lot more about his relationships with people like Joyce, for instance, uh, sure. who he thought the world of, and Sean, Sean Delaney. Yes. Uh, we talked about Sean a lot. And, and we we tried to plan meeting up with Sean at some point while we were together. Sean was a little bit elusive at that time. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think he was living in uh, Northern England uh, for a good period of time. Um, but so yeah, so the, the 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 past as it pertains to Kiss uh, didn't really come up a lot unless we were in a in a group environment. And it was it was kind of funny because oftentimes when people asked, they would kind of start by rolling his eyes. Uh, but then once he started getting into a story, he was full on and, and he would get into it. And yeah. He had a good time, I think, reminiscing about the past. It's just not something that on a practical level, day to day, we would talk about. Sure, sure. And so he was interested in managing the band you were, you were with at that time. 
And was this the start of him kind of going back into the the music industry? Yeah, I I would think so. I you know I and I and I'm thinking back 20 years now, but I if memory serves me correctly, when he came down uh, and started working with us, he was at the same time uh, keeping an eye out on this group called Gun Hill Road from New York. Who I've heard of. And yeah. Yeah, they were, they were, I don't know how popular they were in New York, but they came down to South Florida and they made a good dent. Um, but that group followed Bill. When Bill moved down here, within five months, the whole band had moved down here. Wow. Um, and so then Bill was working with us. He was working with Gun Hill. Then he started working with Flip at the same time, which is a band out of Minneapolis. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, again, no. another very visual group. Right. Um, and then there were two other bands out of South Florida that he also had an interest in. So it, it, it seemed like once he moved down, within a matter of four to five months, all of a sudden he was deeply emerged in the music industry again. Um, and before you know it, I mean, people like Jack Douglas were showing up and Bob Ezrin. Um, many of these people who I really, I, I didn't know who they were, which is ironic considering I've, I've been a music guy most of my life. Well, I knew Jack Douglas because I was a huge fan of Cheap Trick right. um, and Aerosmith, and I know he had done those records. Yep. Um, but yeah, it just seemed, it seemed like within months um, he, he was jumping into the deep end of the pool, and all of a sudden, um, yeah, he was back into it, and I was surrounded by this, this, whole, you know, this whole new world. Or it was not a new world, but it was certainly on a much grander scale, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the band Lordy? Now that would have been with with your time <laughs> I mean, with with Bill and talk about a visual band. He yeah he he was managing them, I believe, up until his death. Does that sound right? Um, well, not not quite. Okay. Um, he started working with them right after they won the Eurovision uh, Song Contest. Um, I forget exactly how the call came in, but I know that Mr. Lordy, the uh, lead singer and, and really the mastermind of the group, I believe he was, he was the head of the Kiss Army in Finland. So it's, it's no huge leap uh, to go from Lordy to Bill O'Coin, considering that was Mr. Lordy's, um, you know, thing was, was right. Kiss. I, I believe Kiss is what motivated him to, to go into this line of work. Um, so I think Bill and Lordy started working together. It might have been around, because I think he started that office. That was a coin globe, right, in Long Island City. Yes. Uh, and I believe that was probably in 2000, was it 2005, maybe, 2006. Um, and it was probably about a year after that. If, if, if Lordy won the contest in 2006, then it was probably around 2006, 2007 that they started working together. Um, Bill actually worked with them, uh, put them on tour. I think they went on OzFest. Yeah, I saw them on OzFest. Uh, yeah, it was like it was like right, 100 yeah. degrees out, and they were out there with those costumes on. They just what, Up there in, in Jersey, you mean? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. It was it was a great show, but I couldn't I, help I, but honestly, thinking Honestly, I, I can't imagine. Actually, yeah. I went to that show. Oh, was were you that, at that show? I, I believe I was, yeah. Um, PNC Arts and, Center um, in Central Jersey, yeah. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, and Bill Bill actually toured Japan with them. He was he was deeply involved, but then they stopped working together uh, shortly before Bill passed away. Uh, maybe maybe a year before Bill passed uh, over some contractual you know uh, situation, whatever it might be. 
Um, I don't think it was ever on, on bad terms. In fact, I still keep in touch with Mr. Lordy. Where whenever he's in town, we try to hook up. Uh, cool. Great guy. Um, but yeah, so they, they worked together for maybe about two two years, two and a half years. Uh, but but yeah, Bill had stopped working with them uh, some time before he he passed away. He had actually picked up Tantric, um, I believe, six months before he passed, and he was working. Uh, with tantric all all right. through that time until he, he passed yeah we've we've had tantric on the show before um so obviously when when he passed you said all all the all the original members of kiss did in some way it sounds like pay their respects to him what about billy yeah idol? did it was did he have that type of re- relationship with billy idol was there any outreach from billy idol or even like steve stevens when when uh, bill passed on you know, it's very strange, Mark. Um, in in all the time that I was with Bill, um, I got to meet a lot of the artists. Uh, I got to meet a lot of his his friends and and people back from the Aquine management days. Um, I I know Bill had rekindled his relationship with a uh, with uh, Gene and and Paul uh, while we were together, and I'd, I'd seen him on the phone with Ace and with with Peter. Uh, on the phone with Billy Squire. Uh, we met with Billy Squire a number of times. Uh, but I never, there was never any exchange that I saw firsthand with Idol, um, hmm. which I thought was, was odd. Right. And to this day, the truth is, I've never made a direct connection uh, with Idol or with Idol's camp. I believe Bill's nephew, uh, Mark, has had some contact with Idol's management. And in fact, I, I know they've met with Idol um, backstage after one of the shows just recently, maybe a couple of years ago, okay. uh, where Bill's nephew and Bill's sister, Betty, actually went backstage, and I know Betty and Idol were talking. So, so I'm, I'm not sure that the relationship soured so much, I, but it, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery to me as to why Bill maintained uh, a lot of communication with most everybody, but... Uh, yeah, for some odd reason, Idol just was not one of them, or or maybe he did, and I just was never a witness to it. I honestly, I I can't tell you, but it it always was a mystery to me. So, you're you you start dating Bill in in the '90s when he's no longer this superstar manager. At, at what point in in your relationship do you kind of come to terms with with the fact that? Yeah, this guy, he was like a Peter Grant. He was like a, you know, Colonel Parker or a Brian Epstein. I mean, Bill O'Coin was one of the biggest rock managers of all time. When when do you kind of come to terms with that? It took me a while. And I, and I think it maybe took me a while because I I might have been very protective about the whole thing. Meaning to say maybe I had a wall up about that whole bit. You know, from the very beginning, obviously, f- friends of mine uh, in in my musical circles down here that play in bands, they knew who he was. But I, I, I just, I chalked it up to, well, he was Kiss's manager, and right. so people right. want to be associated with that and want to talk to him. Uh, so I, I never quite grasped it from, from, from that early on. I think the first wisp that I got of it was when... We went to the Super Bowl in 2002 at the Superdome, okay. and we were walking from the French Quarter to the Superdome, and we uh, and drinking along the way, and twice he got stopped because he was recognized, and I thought well, that that just seems kind of 
unnatural. We're not even in a in a music environment. You know, right, we're just right, walking the streets right. of the French Quarter and into the Super Bowl, and he's getting stopped twice. But again, I I didn't think much of it because you know, well, there's you know, there's tens of thousands of people, and it might be bound to happen. <clears throat> when I when the whole equation changed for me was when we decided that we were going to the pyramids of Egypt for the turn of the millennium. Um, and, and by this point, we're what? We're five years into this relationship. And I'm thinking this is going to be a great getaway. You know, we'll escape everything. And it's just going to be this great mystical kind of experience to, wow. to welcome the new millennium. And um, so we went into, into the pyramids, like camels and all. Talk about corny. Um, but we, we rode to the, into the pyramids, into the, into the desert, and, uh, and get to the Great Pyramid of Giza. And this is a couple of days before the New Year. Okay. And I don't know if you've ever been there. No, um, I have not. Okay, well, we decide that we're actually going to go into the heart of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Now, in order to do this, you have to climb, you know, over all these boulders, and you climb up, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe like five stories. And you come and, or you come across this, this opening in the pyramid, and it's this chamber, it's this narrow corridor that leads down to the heart of the pyramid. And it's very narrow. Uh, there's there's a, a, a ladder, like at a 45-degree angle, and you have to climb backwards one person at a time. <clears throat> so Bill goes down first, and I, I take a picture of him going down the corridor, and he gets down there, and then I go down. And, you know, we get into the heart of the pyramid, and it's, it's a chamber about the size of your living room, maybe two living rooms put together, and there's, you know, there's, there's dirt, and there's this and that. And we're kind of taking pictures of each other. I'm going, all right, well, this is kind of cool, but it'd be great if there was somebody here uh, to take a picture of us together. This is before, you know, before smartphones and sure. the days of the, you know, the selfies and whatnot. Right. Right. So we're hanging out, and they only allow four people down there at a time, or at least the whatever congregation we were with only allowed four people there at a time. So we're hanging out for a couple of minutes, and down comes a young couple from Sydney, and it's this guy maybe in his 20s and his, and his girlfriend, wife, I don't know. And... Um, and they come down and, you know, and like, oh, hey, how are you doing? And, and we tell the young guy, I said, listen, would you mind taking a picture of us? And he goes, you know, sure, mate, absolutely. So he gets our camera and he puts it up to his face. And, and I swear, it's like a, out of a movie in slow motion. He starts pulling the camera down off wow. his face. And he says, please excuse me, but I have to ask you, you wouldn't happen to be Bill LaCoin, would you? <laughs> and I, I completely lost it because of, of all the places, of all the right. settings, we're in a pyramid right. that's 5,000 years old. We're in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and there's nobody there but the four of us. Excuse that's me. That's crazy. And here's this guy asking, you know, are you Bill LaCoin? And I, I would have never, ever in my life thought, um, what are the odds of that? The real kicker to this, and I kid you not, the most hysterical part is that the guy was in the band and he had a demo in his girlfriend's <laughs> purse, and that just made me lose yeah. the com- I mean, at that point, it really became comical. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do have that demo somewhere in, <laughs> in one of my closets, tucked away in a box. And at, at some point, I got to make a connection with this guy once again. But that was, yeah, that was the most hysterical um, way of realizing, I think, what the power of Bill's magnitude or reach was yeah um yeah. i mean to almost a comedic level uh but that is that is something that really knocked me upside the head and something probably my best bullet coin story uh that i can think of
and he's in a pyramid that's 5,000 years old, and he just happens to have a demo on him, and he runs into... What are the, what are you, yeah, what are <laughs> yeah. the, I mean, if it's not weird enough that he would recognize Bill Coin, what yeah. are the odds he's going to... Well, actually, you know what? If someone's going to recognize Bill Coin, chances are they are in the band. Right. So actually, that right. part maybe is not quite as strange. But the fact that he have a freaking... De- Why would you carry a demo in your girlfriend's purse? Who yeah. do you think you're going to meet in, in Cairo? Um... Uh, Unless, I don't know, maybe he did his research and he knew where we were going to be. I, I don't know, it's pretty hysterical, but it, the odds are astronomical. And again, I just, I just thought that was just way too cosmic. That was, that was pretty Yeah, hysterical. that's great, that's great. Now, you know, obviously Bill was very kind of removed from managing KISS at the time you were with Bill, the mid-90s through like 2010, but did you ever have any run-ins with, when you were with Bill, like with any of the guys in KISS? Did you ever... Yeah, yeah, well, again, ironically, the, the first time, it, it's funny, you know, being with Bill is an exercise in irony, uh, for whatever that means. But the, fir- the very first time that Bill and I went to New York together, um, I think one of our first stops was the Plaza Hotel. And we went to basically just get, you know, an appetizer and, and a drink, you know. Um, and, uh, and we sit down at a booth and we order a shrimp cocktail and, uh, and a couple of drinks. And, uh, and I'm, I'm peeling the shrimp and I'm tossing the shrimp shells at Bill just to, just to right. screw with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, Bill gives me this look, uh, as if to say, stop. And I, I think he's just messing with me, like, right. literally, stop. And so now I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm eager to, to try even harder. And he right. says, no, really, stop. And I'm like, oh, what? What's going on? And he says, don't look behind you right now, but there's Gene Simmons sitting two booths behind us, or behind oh, wow. you, behind me, that is. And I'm thinking again, what are, what are the odds that this is the first time I come to New York with Bill, the first place that we hit to have a bite, you know, or a drink, and who's sitting there but Gene Simmons. And, uh, and at this point, I'd, I'd never met any of the guys. Um, so, so once he said that, I thought, okay, you know what, now I, I really have to, because Bill, listen, Bill, Bill was a, a sweetheart of a guy, jovial and generous and kind. Um, but every once in a while, like he liked to, he'd like to rip people a little bit just mm-hmm. for fun, especially right. if he felt comfortable with you. Um, so I figured I was going to do the same. So once he told me that, I, I said, okay, now I'm going to have a go at it. And, uh, and he said, no, please, please really stop. I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll keep it cool. So when it was time to leave, I thought we were just going to make an exit. And he says, no, no, we got to go up and say hi. Now, mind you, this had to be, uh, this had to be 97, 98. And as far as I know, in, in the couple of years that we'd been together, Bill had not been on the phone with Gene, at least not that I had seen and right. not that he had mentioned. So they're into the reunion at this point. This is, this is Ace, Peter. No, this, no, no, okay. this was definitely before the reunion. Okay, so, then, so the, the reunion was 96, so maybe it was like early 96 oh, wow. or 95. Yeah, I'm not sure. It might have been 95 or maybe, maybe it wasn't, but I'm, I'm, I am pretty certain that this was before the reunion. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the date might have been. But um, so, so yeah, so I think we're going to make an exit, and he says, no, let's go up and say hi. And, um, and of course, I'd heard rumors about Gene Simmons and what he could be like. Um, so we walked two booths behind uh, where we were sitting, and Gene was sitting there with what I, I, I can only speculate were two businessmen. There were, there were Asian guys dressed in, in suits, and, um, 
and uh, yeah, Bill didn't even get to say a word before Gene stood up, and he, Gene extends his hand. Bill, how are you? And he was very cordial. Uh, I remember being struck, uh, being surprised by how how open that whole exchange went, considering considering the fact that at least I was under the impression that they hadn't talked in many many years. Sure, I was under the impression that maybe they were not on the best of terms. So, so to see Gene get up and, and without a word and extend his hand and, and say, "Bill, how are you?" and in a very cordial, cordial tone, eh? Not yeah. a, not a, not a put on that I could that I could read. Um, and so, so yeah, so yeah, Bill introduced me, and I, I don't know. They chatted for maybe about thirty, sixty seconds. I can't remember what it was about, uh, but I remember walking away uh, with a very strong sense of. This this is not what I'd heard it was because I if if Bill hadn't told me that they were in the out certainly people were talking and there were rumors that that they were not on the greatest of terms uh, but I remember walking away from that encounter thinking wow this is actually they seem to be getting on quite well wow. uh, and and it, and I think it was not long after that that Gene and Bill that I remember anyways uh, witnessing. Bill and Gene on the phone talking, and I can't remember what about, but I do believe that was nearing the time of the reunion. Sure. Because at okay. that point, it started becoming all-encompassing. Everybody was talking about the reunion, not just amongst our circles, but it was, you know, in the media, it was huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that the band was getting back together with the makeup and all that. So, wow. so yeah, I'm not sure if the conversations on the phone were about that or, or exactly what they were about, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. Roman, you have some really great stories, and, and uh, I know we're at the 40-minute mark here, but a couple more questions if you oh, have wow. time. Uh, I'd, I'd sure. love to just pick your brain um, on where Bill's legacy can end up. I mean, there's been talk about a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and is that something that, that you're pushing for? Is there anything the listeners can do to help that cause? Listen, yeah, that, that would be phenomenal. I mean, look, it, my, my opinion obviously may be biased because uh, I was with the guy for so long. I think there's no denying. Um, I think even the, the, the nominating board of the Hall of Fame cannot deny that KISS is one of the most influential bands of rock and roll. Um, Bill obviously was the man who, who developed that. And, you know, I, I don't want to be out of place when when I say that had it not been for Bill, KISS may not have realized their fullest potential. Um, there, there had been talk after Bill passed away of, I, I think originally this kind of came up when Bill, when, um, excuse me, when KISS uh, was nominated uh, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and then people kind of started saying, well, you know, Bill should be inducted as well. And I think that got certainly my 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 head, you know, uh, thinking about this. Um, and so, so yeah, we've kind of turned it into a little bit of a, of a thing. Um, we, you know, we've started a petition and I know what they've said about petitions in the rock and roll hall of fame, but this is all about really raising, uh, awareness and visibility. Sure. Uh, because I mean, listen, if, if there's, if there's something I can say about Bill's, um, um, uh, place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not just the fact that he developed Kiss. I mean, look at he took. First of all, he he developed three acts. These are not acts that were developed that he just happened to manage. 
there were acts that were basically undiscovered uh, that he developed and made into worldwide multi-million sellers, that being Kiss, Billy Idol, and Billy Squire. Um, two of the three, which are still touring acts and still pulling in money and, and still touring. Um, so, so there's that. There's also the fact that, again, like I said, they're multi-million sellers. I mean, of the, I mean, obviously, of the three, Kiss has sold, I think, what, over 100 million records. Um, I'm not sure exactly where Billy Idol or Billy Squire stand. Um, they, but I mean, they, they both have acts, to be millions and millions. I mean, those Squire oh, I'm, I'm records. Sure they're millions. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so, so there's not only that, but besides the fact that he developed these three acts from, from scratch, um, there's the fact that both Kiss and Billy Idol were poisoned to the music industry um, at their earliest stages. Nobody wanted to touch these people with a 10-foot pole. As it pertains to Kiss, I think the case has been widely documented. You know, nobody wanted uh, any part of Kiss. Radio didn't want it. Promoters didn't want it. Um, you know, Bill had, as, as the story goes, actually to put up his American Express card uh, to finance their, their first tour. Sure. Um, yep. so, so, I mean, he had to swim upstream to, to make that happen. Billy Idol was no different. You know, Billy Idol come from Generation X. He was signed to a chrysalis in, in the UK. Um, Generation X was about to be dropped. He kind of salvaged the, the lead singer, brought him to the States. And Chrysalis, stateside, did not want anything to do with Billy Idol. So it's not only that Bill took three acts from scratch and, and turned them into multi-million sellers. Two of them were completely unwanted by the industry and actually took steps to, to try to, to keep them from, from, you know, uh, from becoming what they eventually became. Yeah. So, so there's, there's that whole aspect. And then beyond that, there's the fact that Bill started, maybe arguably, maybe not, the first music merchandising empire with KISS. Um, I don't think I've seen from a merchandising point of view anything as big as the Kiss machine. Yeah. I mean, before that, certainly you had, you know, the Beatles had a lot of stuff. But I don't think there was ever an empire, a merchandising empire, licensing empire created uh, like the one that was born out of Kiss. Um, and that was, you know, that was Bill's brainchild. Um, so that was huge. That, that, that developed into a whole new revenue stream for the music industry, whereas before it might have been a secondary uh, music stream. Right now, I would venture to say, this is my opinion, that merchandising probably accounts for more money than record sales. Record yeah. sales are nowhere. So who's to say where, you know, uh, how long that might have taken to develop had Bill not come along in 1974, 75 to develop that side of the business? It's a really good point, <clears throat> yeah. You know, and, and then there's the other thing, which is he reinvented the live performance arena. I mean, okay, there were shows, and then there were big shows, and then came Kiss. You know, now, was it Bill's brainchild to develop every particular, you know, aspect of, of their live show? Nobody certainly hired some of the best people, and Bill did have this grand vision. Remember, he was, Bill was a vision guy. He was right. a, 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 a visual guy. Um, which I keep saying is why I think he wanted to go into TV and film and, and probably even uh, live theater. 
Um, so, so this is something that came very second nature to him. So, and, and to this day, I mean, you can quote Garth Brooks, who was widely inspired by Kiss's live show. I don't know how many people actually know that, yeah. but Garth has made it public. So, so it's not even just reinventing the, uh, the live stage as it pertains to the rock genre. I mean, this went across different platforms of music, or different genres of music, right down to, to country, and to this day. There, so, there are even so I, stories out there which, um, which I think have a lot of credibility that, you know, Michael Jackson was, was influenced by, by seeing Kiss and just how visual they Michael were. Michael Jackson reached out to Bill. Again, I'm not sure if any people know the story. Remember when the Jackson 5 did the reunion tour in 83? Yes. Uh, they reached out to Bill. I, I'm not sure if Michael did or if Michael's people, I'm not sure exactly who got in touch with Bill, um, to see if Bill would oversee uh, uh, that reunion tour wow. of the Jackson 5. Uh, and again, I mean, if that doesn't put it into perspective, I don't know what does. I don't know why it didn't work out. I'm not sure if Bill was just tied up with, um, with Idol or, or if it was at maybe at the tail end of, of Kiss. I can't, and Bill did tell me that story, and I just, I just cannot remember to save my life. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Wow. It's a story again that's, that's kind of uh, untold. I, listen, I, I don't mean to stray off the subject very much, but um, even the cars, and it's funny. I just corroborated the story with Elliot Easton, uh, the guitar player for the Cars. You know, before the Cars were the Cars in 1970, I think it was six or so. Uh, they were trying to get signed. I forget what name they were going under at the time. And they were playing uh, a show, I think it was in Max's Kansas City. And they were looking to court some kind of a, a management deal or record deal. And, um, and Bill was invited to that show. And I know Bill had a talk with the band afterwards saying, listen, guys, okay, the music's cool and this and that, but visually this, just, this is just not working. Something's not making sense here. And I think he said, ah, God, what... I think he he told the band, this looks like Steely Dan meets New Wave, and it's just not working. Um, whatever it was, again, Elliot, Elliot has confirmed the story. And the cars went back, and I can't say it was solely on the word of Bill, but they went back, kind of reinvented themselves, and came back as the cars. And, and, and ironically, it looks like this year they might be inducted uh, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Again, Bill's wow. reach was far and wide. So again, when you're talking about influence as it pertains to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think influence is one of those factors that I think counts for a lot. Again, not only in developing these three acts, two of which were unwanted by the industry, building this, this music merchandising empire, reinventing the live stage. So... Listen, again, yeah, my opinion may be biased, but apparently there's many people that agree. I think we have uh, close to 3,000 people uh, who have signed the petition. And, and yeah, where do you sign the petition? There, where do you go to sign the petition? You can go to build the Coin Globe website. Coin Globe was the last company that Bill had uh, before he passed away, and now the website has been replaced completely by the petition to induct Bill. And that is Ocoin, as in Bill Ocoin, A-U-C-O-I-N, globe as in the world a coin globe.com okay. uh and yes yeah, sign the petition um you can leave a comment if you like many people have um and and again kudos to everybody who has 
including, by the way, I have to give props to uh, Dave Ellison, David Ellison of uh, Megadeth, oh, nice. who has also been a huge support, and again, what a nice guy. But by all means, uh, go online, find the petition. If you're not quite uh, sure uh, how Bill LaCoin's influence uh, is, is felt by the music industry, go to the website, and in, in a couple of paragraphs, it'll tell you, and it'll kind of sum it up. But yeah, had it not been for Bill, I mean, a certainly, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Kiss would be the band they are today. Bill, Billy Idol would not be here. Billy Squire probably wouldn't be here. Um, we may may not have the the kind of live uh, uh, stage performances that we have today, or or merchandising as a as a viable revenue stream in the music industry. So. It's huge. I, I know there's other managers, and again, to to quote, I think you were talking about Peter Grant, absolutely Led Zeppelin, and God knows he did a lot for the industry as well. Chef right. uh, Gordon is is another one. Alice Cooper. Uh, yeah. But I think, yeah, but Bill Bill's someone that had to fight tooth and nail to get these acts that were unwanted uh, to not only a, a successful level to, but to a legendary level, and again to reinvent what the music industry was, uh, which is a model that's still, um, you know, still holding on to this day. So I, I think his role in the music industry beyond KISS, beyond KISS, is maybe um, underestimated. And if nothing else, I think, I think it deserves a second look, because I think these are, these are angles of the music industry that, that people would not have taken into account when they're talking about inducting Bill into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So yeah, go to the website, acoinglobe.com, uh, sign the petition, and also there's a Facebook group uh, to induct Bill into the Hall of Fame. There's, you'll see short films there, and you'll see pictures and whatnot. We've, got, we've been lucky enough to get a, um, a lot of artists that are supporting our cause, most recently Klaus Meine of uh, the Scorpions, like I said, Dave Ellison, um, uh, who opposed uh, for photographs uh, cool. to endorse uh, Bill's induction to the Hall of Fame? But yeah, go go check it out because I think it's I think it's part of a movement, and I'm hopeful that it will happen. I, I don't know if it will happen this year or next year, but I I think it's going to happen because I I think Bill more than left his mark uh, in the music industry. Absolutely. Again, nothing against other music managers, but when you add up all the elements, everything he brought into the sandbox, uh, I think I think it takes. Um, I think it deserves a, a closer look. Yeah. Roman, you tell some great stories, and we really appreciate you sharing them here with the Talking Metal listeners and, and with me. It's just I, I love hearing the stuff. Uh, and we will have the Facebook group and the website that you mentioned linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. This is kind of uh, off the beating path question. I'm just going to throw it out there. There's been actually two books recently written there's a book called Van Halen Rising by Greg Renoff. There's another book out um, right now by uh, about Van Halen. The name is slipping my mind. And uh, it's written by Noel Monk, who was their manager. And Bill is mentioned in both of these books. Um, different stories about him in each one. And in the Van Halen Rising book by Greg Renoff, there's a detailed account of the band's interactions with Bill and ultimately his rejection of Van Halen. And, and yeah. a, a, just a devastated Van Halen leaving New York after just kind of being kicked to the curb by by Bill LaCoyne and and uh, even with Gene Simmons as their cheerleader. Did he ever talk about Van Halen? 
No, no. no? But I got I got to <laughs> okay. tell you what's funny. Right. Listen, first first of all, did you know? Well, you said you interviewed Bill. Uh, did yes. you Did you know him well as as, as a person? Or I, I I mean, I spent two hours with him one day. But besides that, I, I did not. I can't say that I knew him well. But you know, I did okay. I did meet him and and got to ex- experience some of his his personality, very straightforward guy. I remember after the interview, yeah. we were done him. He was giving me an advice that how I should look a little more rock and roll and, uh, <laughs> and uh, needed to kind of work on my image a lot. I mean, meanwhile, I had, I had come from my day job, so I had a, you know, a tucked in shirt and button shirt on. So, but he was, he was, uh, he was a real character and uh, he, you know, I'm going to probably dig out that interview that we did with him and put it back on, uh, yeah, yeah, by the feed. way, I'd love to check that out sometime. Absolutely. If, if you do dig it out, yeah, yeah, please point me to it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but, but to answer your question, listen, um, God, I, I mean, a character, I, and again, I know my opinion's biased because I was with the guy for so long, but I was, I was, bit, I was with him be, because he was who he was. I mean, look at, the guy was wise, yeah. wise beyond belief. Absolutely. He was inspiring. He was a jovial personality. Uh, just, he just, always made you feel good but like you said if he had something to say he wouldn't beat around the bush he'd, yes. he'd tell you straight up exactly you know what was up but this magnetic personality and so understanding and and you know he was just he was just just this great great human being and had had so many successes that the only thing I could ever bring up when I wanted to bring him down to earth, not that he ever had to bring him down to earth, but when I wanted to, when I wanted to jab him a little bit, yeah. I'd bring up Halen right. and that would piss him off. Right, said, right. You know, shut, you know, say shut the fuck about Van Halen already. I said, no, but really what? Cause Van Halen's a band that I love. I see. I grew up with Halen. Right. And, uh, and then Bill would roll his eyes and laugh about it. He says, you know, I'm pretty sure that, that Edward is still pissed off uh, at me to this day because of that. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but he, you know, he, he didn't walk me through the story so much. He, he told me probably as much as he's told you, or he's, he's recant, uh, 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 recalled on, on different radio shows, uh, you know, where he flew the band out and, uh, and he, I, the, the one thing Bill told me is he loved Eddie, um, and and he thought the band was good. He just didn't care for Dave. And, yeah, well, that's and the story Dave that's in the one book, um, the Van Halen Rising by Greg Renoff. That that basically it was he bl- he blamed things on Dave, which as to why he wasn't interested in the band. And in Bill's defense, Dave did improve uh, tremendously vocally. You know, after that point, I mean, he was he was already well on his way, but he did continue to improve and really worked hard on his his vocals. And some people think that Bill's rejection of Van Halen may have even made David Lee Roth a better singer because he worked that much harder to to get his voice in shape. So maybe we have in a strange way we have Bill to to thank for you know, it's, it's, David Lee Roth's it's strength. It's possible. It's you know, and, and I'm, and I'm, I mean, listen, certainly Dave circa 1976, 77, um, I don't think was quite the showman that, that Dave became by, by the time of, you know, women and children or, or, um, or, um, fair warning. I think if Bill had seen that Dave, maybe it might've, it might've gone down, uh, a little differently. And, and I think Bill does say that that was, that was a regret. Well, actually, you know what he did say to me specifically, he learned, he learned a lesson, uh, from that whole episode. 
And he said, what I should have done, I should not have flown the band to my office in New York. I should have flown to Pasadena or right, to, right. I forget what they're from. I think it's Pasadena. I should have flown to whatever, to, to California, LA, LA, to see them in their natural habitat. And, and I think that is a lesson he took to the grave, literally, um, because I don't think he ever uh, flew a group or saw a group outside of their environment after the whole Halen thing. Uh, right. So, you know, at least, at least you could say he learned from his mistakes. And, man, yeah, that's one he, he will never live down. <laughs> and, 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 again, no thanks to me, because I, I would bring it up every once in a while when I wanted to take a little, a little jab at him. Now, there's this new book out, which is a really good read. I'm not sure how much of it is factual, though, because I think it's... it's uh, Greg Renoff's book is filled with history, but this Noel Monk book, who actually became Van Halen's manager, he, he has a, a really fun readout called Running with the Devil. Uh, it's out now. It's uh, really doing well, selling well. But he mentions Bill's name later in the game because he didn't really come into the Van Halen fold until after the first record, which would have been a number of years after Bill had decided to pass on them. But he says that after they fired Marshall Burl, or when they were getting ready to fire Marshall Burl, who was Milton Burl's nephew, who was a big L.A. manager, that they were considering going to Bill O'Coin, I guess reapproaching Bill O'Coin uh, again to manage them, but they didn't. And then they ended up go- promoting their tour manager, who was this guy, Noel Monk, who wrote the book. They ended up promoting him to manager. But he specifically says that Edward was was bringing up Bill O'Coin's name when they were unhappy. This would have been probably right before the se- second record came out, when they were un- or maybe right after the second record. They were unhappy with this guy, Marshall Burl. They were bringing up Bill's name. So I don't know if they Curious. I, I got something. Time. That is the first I've heard of it. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I don't know. If, if they never approached him, then obviously Bill wouldn't know unless somebody had shared the same story with him. Uh, I, that's interesting, actually. I'd love to find out if that's if that's indeed the case or not. Yeah, that's in so the if, the Running with the Devil book by Noel Monk, their their manager. Uh, he, it's out now. It's a brand new book, not brand new, but came out this year. And I I just found it odd because it seemed like they were you know he doesn't really talk about the rejection initially because he picks it up you know at the first record which when when he started as their tour manager but he says after that second record came out and they fired Marshall Burl that that I believe he says Edward had brought up possibly approaching Bill Coin to manage them but then I guess Dave wanted this guy Noel Monk their tour manager to manage him and 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 that's actually what what happened. Noel Monk took over managing them right up until Dave left the band. I think he was with them until like eighty five or something. Yeah, I, I, again, I, news to me. I had never heard the story, and I'd, I'd love to find out if that's in, indeed the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows? That yeah. again, that might have been interesting. Where where might that might the band be if if, if that had been the case? Because again, one thing I I know about Bill, and I think it's documented. I, I think even with the force, when the forces within uh, the band members of KISS uh, were sometimes at odds, uh, Bill was a master at being able to, um, to ease each personality to the point where everybody was okay with each other and everybody felt taken care of. Um, and I, I mean, listen, I, I only know what I've read about Van Halen's breakup. Well, well, not breakup, but, you know, uh, Dave's departure from the group. 
And I wonder if Bill actually might have been instrumental uh, had he been in control of a band in learning how to um, compartmentalize, right. you know, each personality. Because uh, from what I understand, it's, it was really Ed and, and Dave uh, that had the, the biggest issue. Uh, or whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, but based on what I know about Bill's management style, um, I wonder if that might have ever been avoided if Bill had been looking after Van Halen. You never know. I mean, what could have been, right? Very well could have. Might have been a whole, yeah, a whole different story. Could have saved Van Halen. Anyways, on, on, that, on that note... That's one for the history books. <laughs> yeah, the what-if history books. But on that exactly. note, Roman, it's been so great talking with you. I love these stories. And uh, yeah, I know we were talking about doing like 20, 30 minutes. Here we are in an hour, and it just flew by. So th- thank you for your time. Thank you, man. Thank you for taking an interest. And uh, yeah, and if, if ever we do it again, and hopefully we'll hook up at some point. Maybe maybe have a... Oh, by the way, Barbara Papa George uh, told me to tell you hello. Awesome. Um, oh, yeah, I love that. I'm not sure if that's going in the interview or not, but uh, but she yeah, said, oh sure. my God, Mark, he's such a sweet guy. And she was talking about the VH1 days and, and oh, like yeah. that. But yeah, we had, in we had any a case, good time uh, at VH1 back in the day. And uh, so are you working with her on stuff now? Uh, we Listen, we... we, we we become really, really good friends, um, if nothing else. And she is, um, she is a delightful, uh, bad influence on me sometimes. <laughs> were you, by the way, were you part of the crew that went down to the Bahamas to do a shoot with, uh, with VH1 one time? Uh, I, I was no? at the Keith Richards shoot. I was not, if that's, that's, I know they shot Keith Richards in the Bahamas once. I'm not sure if that's what it was. I, that, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the, I don't no, think that's okay. the episode. Okay, no, no not, not, not to worry. I'll, I'll tell you about this some other time. Okay. Uh, but no, but me and Barbara, yeah, we've, we've become really, really, uh, really good friends. Uh, cool. well, we have even, even since Bill was alive. Um, and yeah, every time in New York, we try to hook up and, when she comes, to, well, she barely comes down here, that bitch. But uh, but whenever she does, uh, yeah, we we hook up, and if not, we we talk on the phone at least, you know, whatever. Anyways, we're we're very very tight. Well, that's awesome. And next time you're you're up in New York, Roman, we definitely have to grab a drink, maybe have some dinner with Barbara. That would be fun to hang out with you guys. And again, thanks. I think- that would be a great picnic. Yep. Yeah, that would be awesome. And thanks again for these great stories. And we will have the the website linked and the Facebook page linked in today's show notes on talkingmetal.com. Again, we're talking... Oh, oh, go ahead. uh, But again, you know, Bill's birthday is is coming up uh, on December 29th. Um, Just just for for kicks, one of the things that we always do, Bill's friends, myself, uh, on the day of Bill's birthday and on the anniversary of his passing, is we go to our favorite watering hole uh, here in Hollywood on the Intercoastal Waterway. And we raise a toast to Bill. He used to drink sea breezes. If you don't know what a sea breeze is, Google it. Um, Or whatever you have in hand. But it's usually at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December uh, 29th. We raise a toast to Bill. So, again, if if listeners want to follow along on the 29th, uh, say happy birthday to Bill. Raise a toast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Sounds good. Thank you, Roman, for speaking with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for taking an interest, Mark.
What you just heard was God of Thunder off of Kiss Alive 2. Let's hit a little Man of War right now here on Talking Metal. This is Metal Days. I hear the sound in a metal way. I feel the power rolling off the stage. Cause only one thing really sets me free.
That was Metal Days by Manowar here on Talking Metal. The moment you've been waiting for. Not Over nine years ago, we did this interview with Bill Coyne. And I haven't heard it since, so I'm lo- looking forward to listening to it right now with you guys. Let's hit a little Lordy going into the interview, a little sound sample of Lordy. And then we'll hear from uh, Bill Coyne, recorded in New York City in his office out there in Long Island City, which is a, a part of New York City, in the uh, the borough of Queens, right across the uh, East River from Manhattan. We recorded this. Yeah, so let's check it out and uh, hit some Lordy going into it. Hit a Kiss classic after it, and we'll talk to you in 2018. All right, guys, be safe on this, uh, this uh, New Year's Eve coming up. And support Talking Metal. We need your support. You know how to do it. Cool. All right, little Lordy. Thank you. I'm here with Mark Striegel, and we are with one of the most legendary music managers, TV moguls in the world. I've known about this guy since I was in second grade, Mr. Bill Acoin. How are you, Bill? How are you? I'm doing great. What a great office you've got here. It is fun, but I'm waiting for the hard questions. Well, this isn't too hard. I, I hope it's not too hard, but uh, we want to get into a, a lot of your history, which is just amazing and 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 I'm sure very interesting. But first, let's talk about Modern Times, a great band which John and I have been uh, fans of for a while. Fixer has recently announced that you are managing them. How did you hook up with these guys? Uh, well, I've known Evan for years, and uh, I kind of uh, uh, was kind of a mentor and also someone who'd, who'd tell him the bad news, I think, for years. You know, it's kind of hard. I mean, when you see someone as talented as he is, you really want to help. And, of course, part of helping is also telling an artist when it's not quite up to par or when you, if you think it needs changes or things that could help them succeed. And uh, I, I think from Evan's point of view, unfortunately, he heard a lot of that from me for years. And finally, uh, the band finally settled down and the music really came up and they, and they, they had a chance to get their first deal. And I, I, I really uh, not only enjoy him that much, and I love the band, but I, I really admire Evan uh, tremendously. Not only is he a, he's a good singer and, and uh, 
and, and is an extremely good artist, but extremely bright and very aware and works, I think, 24 hours a day on his career. And uh, that, to me, is, is part of the elements that's necessary to become a success today. So when we started talking about managing, management finally, and we've done that for years and I've kind of pushed it off for years, but since we started a new company called O'Coin Globe, um, I really wanted to uh, manage them, and so it's finally happened. Yeah, what an amazing voice on Evan, and uh, definitely a personality, too. We've done interviews with him. Yeah, Evan has been on our Talking Rock radio show, and uh, we had a blast. And The Rev, the drummer, was on as well. Now, Bill, you are known for a lot of your history, of course, Kiss in the 1970s and into the early 80s. Billy Idol, you were his manager when he was exploding. And then in the 90s, you seem, at least to someone like me, to not really be too present in the music industry. What were you up to in that time period? Well, I did a couple of things. I was out raising money for independent filmmakers. My background is started in film and television. But also, to be honest with you, uh, I was really out of my element with hip-hop. You know, none of the A&R guys really wanted to sign rock and roll. I made a couple of small attempts to say, hey, you know, are you interested? I think this band may work if we all get behind it. No, no, rock isn't working. We're not really signing rock and roll acts. And uh, and I, you know, I really didn't, although, although some hip-hop I really like, but for the most part, uh, I was really kind of a fish out of water for that. So it wasn't really until the end of the 90s, early you know, 2000 and 2001, that I started to feel that rock was really starting to come back. It might have taken a couple more years, but I, you, you could just tell it was time. Plus, there was, a, there was a generation that really grew up with rock and roll, classic rock and roll. So the generation knew about rock and roll. Uh, what was happening was hip-hop, but it was there under, underground. You know, and the other side of this was that metal never really went away. You, know, you two probably know that more than anyone. Uh, and, and that I started to go after again and learn more about it and see what was happening. I also started to get involved just briefly with a band that we eventually signed called Nothing Rhymes with Orange, which is kind of, a, kind of an English-sounding band, but they were from Miami, where I was living. And we brought them over to England, and I hadn't been in England for a couple of years, and I just started to realize again that that music never went away there. You know, they never gave up on any music, and the generation after generation still goes to clubs to hear new music. You know, here a lot of times, if, if, if it's not a well-known band or if it's not someone that's been promoted, no one really cares about seeing them. And, and in Europe, it seems to, that seems to be the opposite, where, where kids just still seem to be excited about new talent, anything they, they run into, or if they go to a club some night to hear someone else, and they hear, they hear a new band, they stay and they listen. So that excited me again. Uh, I also started uh, talking to a band called uh, Lordy, which is a band from Finland, um, with my partner, um, and I, I said, you know, this is kind of interesting. And uh, I was uh, told that they were going to be part of Eurovision. And, of course, they then won Eurovision, which is unusual for a monster metal band to, to win Eurovision. And uh, then I found out that their manager, who initially worked with them, was no longer managing them. Apparently he had gotten ill and so forth. So we went over and actually spent a couple of weeks uh, also a couple of nights on the tour bus, which I hadn't done for about 20 years. That was exciting. Uh, in any case, uh, uh, by the end of that, they asked us whether we would manage them. 
And I said, yes. Ironically, Mr. Lordy was the president of the KISS fan club in, in Finland. So we had some ongoing uh, things that were mutual. Uh, and that just that developed. We brought him over here. We put him on OzFest. They toured with, uh, uh, with O Negative. They, uh, and they're going to come back again in November for their new album. The single was just released a couple of days ago and entered the charts in Finland number one. So, so far, so good. I've seen performance footage online of Lordy playing in Finland, and it looks like Times Square on New Year's Eve. They are just huge over there. Well, it is, and, and of course, when they won Eurovision, you know, the last when, when you win Eurovision, the following year they take the whole network show to your town. Um, but the, the year they won Eurovision, two hundred thousand people showed up in the main square in, in uh, Helsinki to see them. And uh, the next year, of course, the whole network television uh, unit came in for the, and, and they were the hosts of the show. And what happens is, is that we we went and shot a movie, a film opening. And then it, it, that film opening went into a live performance of Lordy. And for those first five minutes of, of Eurovision uh, that year, 130 million people saw them. So, so they're very well known outside of North America, or at least the United States, because uh, Eurovision doesn't, doesn't play here. Bite It Like a Bulldog is the number one single right now right. in Finland by Lordy. And this is a band that... John and I got into, and we loved the big hooks that they had, and we uh, we saw them on Ozfest in ninety degree weather, probably sweating their their asses off in the in the in the costumes. And it was just later that we found out that you were involved with them, and it kind of made sense because, in a way, they kind of brought back the big rock vibe of the seventies in a contemporary way. Is that something that attracted you to them? Yes, yeah, obviously, you know, one of the reasons why we developed such a big KISS show back in the 70s was, was, was one, because they wanted to, but two, because I came out of television and film as a director-producer, and I didn't see myself sitting behind a desk being a manager. And uh, if you look at any of the records that say O'Coin Management in those days, it'll say Direction Management and uh, O'Coin Management. So from that point of view, I wanted to direct something. I wanted to continue my in my field of direction, and so... Every time we came up with a new idea for the show, uh, the great part about Kiss was that they really went along with it. You know, some artists you say, "Let's try this," and oh, you know, they 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 look at you like you've had three heads, and 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 they and it just doesn't happen. But in Kiss's case, uh, the great thing about those four guys were that they they were willing to try anything and anything to make it happen. And their dream, and I can tell you one story when when they were making like maybe twenty five dollars a performance, if that. They would save up their money, and, and, and for a performance that they really wanted to feel good about, they would hire, they'd put the money into a limousine so they could drive to this club or, or this bar to play in a limousine, and they would, they would think in their own minds that it would be like going to Madison Square Gardens, you know, and, that, and that, that's really very special, you know, and some people might say, well, why would they do that? But, you know, when you have that in your mind's eye from the very beginning, and, and I've always told artists, I say, you better see that success in your mind's eye because there'll be plenty of hills and valleys in between. And as long as you keep, as long as your mind's eye keeps pointing in the direction you feel you want to go and where you want to get to, uh, you know, you have a real good shot. I was going to ask what initially attracted you to Kiss, and I think that that 
has got to be the answer. The fact that they always were looking ahead to success and they were also willing to try anything, everything from breathing fire to just all of the other show ideas that, that you guys came up with. There's lots of there's lots of good stories. I mean, it wasn't all uh, quite as simple, but almost. It's, uh, you know, I had I had a fire breather come into my office and uh, he set up his little can of, of kerosene or whatever it was or, and uh, and he blew flames he darkened one of my walls actually and and the four guys were sitting there and their eyes were wide as can be and and I turned to them and I said well who wants to try it and no one did no one said they I don't think they could believe that I was even thinking of it and then finally Gene kind of raised his hand and, and that's really why it went to Gene uh, I'll, I'll tell you one other story as well. Gene is always like that. You know, if he, he thinks it can work and he can be out there, he's going to do it. I had uh, developed something really for Paul Stanley because Gene was getting so much attention with the fire and the spinning of the blood that I wanted Paul to fly to the top of the lighting grid to sing a song. And I'm, I'm describing this, and Paul said, Gene, well, I don't know if I really want to fly. Of course, the minute he said that, Gene said, oh, I'll do it. You know, and that's, again, that's wow. why Gene flew. And, uh, I mean, my main concern in many areas, I mean, all that was fun, and, and creating that and making it work. You know, like how we, we were involved with the first uh, radio guitars and, and, uh, and some of the first uh, air guns for confetti and for, you know, all that other stuff that no one had ever done before. So, and, and lasers as well, which didn't work out uh, the initial when we first tried it, but, but all of that we went through. And, uh, and doing those shows, especially with, with a group that would do it, you know, uh, although Gene went to those kind of spectacular things, uh, you know, Paul would do the spectacular jumps and everything else that would be unbelievable. And, and Ace, of course, we had all the electric guitars with all the lights and everything else, and right, so he could shoot them, you know, and, and, and Peter would go up on the drum riser. And uh, so everyone really had their thing, but yeah, everyone went along with it, and, of course, it worked. It was great. Literally, bands today really take cues still from the stuff that you guys did because all of that stuff I don't think had ever been seen before. And I think you guys were the true innovators of a major, big rock show like that. And I mean, even the 80s metal bands, all that was just on the coattails of, of what you guys were doing in the 70s. It's very it's interesting seeing all the things that we really developed way back then, and we see them almost in every show now. You know, the fire pods. How many, how many times have you right. seen those fire pods go out with everyone? And we're the ones that developed it back then so yeah it's kind of hard you know uh, there's a lot of new things that are happening uh, not only in 3d and the screens and and walls that can be that can conform to all sorts of things which will be exciting in the future but but uh you know yeah i mean uh, what we went through and what we and again it was all because everyone was able to say yeah let's try it whatever it is if we can do it we'll do it and and i find that again you may not think this but there are a lot of artists who are afraid to take chances they really are stuck in their own world and i always say listen and again something else i told kiss and other artists look we're going to fail at some things and as long as we win more than we fail we're going to be fine and with kiss we were very lucky i would say we won most about 80 percent of the time but even if we had won 51 percent of the time we would have been ahead of the game and those those other 20 percent that we really failed or that just fell apart or didn't work no one even remembers now had you stopped managing kiss when you started up with billy idol uh no no uh, we actually uh the beginning of it, it's very interesting uh from my perspective uh when a band starts having problems, you know, remember uh, uh, when Peter Chris 
left the band and, uh, and I kind of made a, a, a contract for him leaving the band and then Ace there was a question about Ace uh, you know it's almost like seeing the love of your life or your children kind of falling apart uh, so that bothered me uh, and then uh, Gene and Paul really wanted to take off their makeup and I understood why they wanted to um, because obviously everyone else that was having success was known and they could go out and they weren't known and they weren't getting that, that kind of feeling where people would come up to them. And so I understood why they wanted to do it. On the other hand, I had spent almost 10 years protecting the KISS logo and the KISS faces and, and it was the first time that any rock band had ever had their faces copywritten in the Library of Congress. I mean, it took years to do that. Plus the merchandise was a big part of what they were doing and, and, and also a big part of the money that was coming in every year for them and, and for all of us. Uh, so when they started to talk about that, on top of the fact that Peter had left and then Ace maybe was leaving, uh, it was a little depressing for me. It was a little kind of like, you know, how, how am I going to keep my energy up if all of this is happening? It's not really the kiss that I began with. It's changing. Uh, am I going to feel good about it or not? And uh, Gene and Paul came into my office one day and said, well, you know, it's not quite the same. And, uh, and we kind of sat there, all of us kind of going, oh, my goodness, we knew what was going to happen. We discussed it, and we said we are going to split. And that's, that's how it happened. Uh, we're actually closer now, I think, than, than even then, because then it was more like a manager and artist. And now it's really just friends, and they're really, really close friends. But, uh, but that was that. Uh, at the same time, I had gone to see uh, this band called Generation X in the middle of the winter, uh, playing on the Isle of Wight uh, in the middle of the winter, which is not a fun place to be. And uh, and the reason is that the is the uh, one of the owners of Chrysalis had said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna let uh, Generation X go, but we get this kid, this front kid called Billy Idol, that uh, he's really talented, but we have no idea what we're gonna do with him. But we thought maybe you could think of something or work with him or whatever and uh, so I went to the Isle of Wight in the middle of the winter I saw him and I said oh yeah he's a star and I went back to the company and I said yeah I, I think we've got something here uh, let me talk let me come back to England when Billy gets off tour and talk to him so I did and I said uh, I said you know would you consider coming to the States and Billy said no no I'm, I'm going to do another Generation X album now I already knew that they weren't they were going to let Generation X go so I didn't want to disappoint Billy, but I said, okay, well, if, you, if, if the next Generation X album doesn't work, would you come to the States? He said, yes. So I went back to Chrysalis, and I said, we're going to do another Generation X album. And they looked at me cross-eyed and said, no, you don't understand, Bill. We're going to release Generation X. I said, no, no, you're not. You're actually going to do another Generation X album, and I'm going to use it to put a team together for Billy. And so we did it, and uh, songs like Dancing With Myself came out of it and a few others. And, uh, and I put uh, Keith Forsey, I brought Keith Forsey in. Keith was, was the drummer and assistant to Giorgio Moroda on, on Donna Summer's albums. And Giorgio kept telling me, you know, I've got this young guy who's just so super talented. I really think he's going to be a great producer. And so I sent Keith three tapes. I forgot who the other two artists were, and I said, pick one. And you'll have a chance to produce. And he picked Billy, wow. which is the one I wanted him to pick, but I wasn't <laughs> sure. Anyway, so I brought him to England. He did the Generation X album. We kind of put, started putting the team together. And, of course, I knew that Chrysalis wasn't going to promote it. Uh, so that kind of died. And, and I, then I brought Billy to the States and signed him to Chrysalis Inc. over here from Chrysalis Limited in England. 
And uh, they hated me, actually. They, they thought it was over. Uh, and uh, they said, well, I, I, you know, just because you know the owners of the company doesn't mean that we have to deal with this artist. They, he, he, it was over. And, and they were releasing Gen X, and, you know, punk music didn't work in the States, and now we have to deal with it. Ooh, wow, that wasn't a great awakening. So they wouldn't even let me do a new album. Then we made a compromise. We'll just do an EP. And that EP, ironically, had Money Money on it, the first song wow. we recorded. And, um, and after we did the EP, and if you remember the, the, the picture of Billy with the spiked hair and everything up and everything, I got a call from from the head of promotion at Chrysalis in L.A. And he said, are you going to be in L.A.? And I said, well, if we're going to talk about the release, I'll come to L.A. And so I went to L.A., and, and he said, uh, Bill, I, I'm going to be very honest with you because I know you know the owners of the company, but I'm not going to promote this album. And I have a very dry sense of humor, so I'm thinking, this guy, we'll get along fine. He's got a yeah, good dry sense of humor. And then I realized it wasn't a sense of humor. He was serious. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in shock. And he, um, he said, look, you know, this is not the right image for Chrysalis. You know, we have really significant artists, and, uh, and I, I can't put this out with this kid with the spiked hair and stuff, this punk rocker. This is just not good for Chrysalis. I don't want to ruin Chrysalis's reputation at radio. Wow. So I'm sitting there going, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, in those days, I knew that any significant single would have significant money behind it, and because you know, obviously, and 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 that in those days, don't forget that was like in the beginning of eighties. If a company was really behind a single, you probably a promotional budget would be about a quarter of a million dollars, about two hundred fifty thousand. And um, so I said, okay, well, I want the promotional budget. And and uh, he said, oh no no no, I, I, this can't go to radio. I, and I said, I will not spend a penny on radio so he kind of had to give in a bit stuff so basically i walked out saying oh what are we going to do and uh, we came up with an idea i thought that was that actually worked but we didn't know it at the time which was to bring in certain djs at some of the big clubs around the country and say listen come on to new york we're going to wine and dine you you're going to do your own mix of dancing with myself and uh and you'll go back and have it with you and so forth so everyone said yes of course you know, and uh, they went into the studio and mixed it with Billy and and you know Keith and everything. And of course, they left with our mix. They didn't know that, but but they but they <laughs> went back. They went back and they played it day and night. I mean, every night they were playing. They it was play, yeah, right, right, right. And uh, so, uh, about uh, two weeks later, I get a call from the head of promotion. I don't know how you did this. I, I you know, I I don't understand how this happened. But we're getting calls from radio stations why we haven't serviced the Billy Idol song. So it worked in reverse, where radio started calling Chrysalis wow. and saying, how come you haven't serviced us this? Everyone wants to hear it. So, I mean, uh, so, you know, I mean, you never know what's going to happen. You know, with, with Kiss, you know, no one liked Kiss. Uh, you know, no makeup band was ever going to make it. Radio thought for sure it was a loser. Um, you know, most magazines didn't. In fact, I have to tell you, Jan Winter at, at Rolling Stone made a decree that no one should ever put Kiss in Rolling Stone, period. And as of today... He still won't do it. In fact, he's on the Grammy board, and uh, he always votes against anything that kiss uh, how, the, how, the Rock of Fame, rather. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rock right. and Roll Hall of Fame, and always votes against Kiss. I, I think yeah. I read an article where he said as long as he's on that yeah. board, he'll he will never even happen. let them get yeah. to be nominated. Correct, yeah. And so, I mean, it'll eventually happen, but yeah. And uh, so it was, you know, it gone through a lot of strange things, you know. 
One of the first concerts that I ever saw in my hometown, uh, which is called Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which I know Kiss has played back in the Absolutely. Destroyer tour, um, was Billy Idol when Rebel Yell was happening. I remember I had the shirt, and uh, so that was one of my earliest concerts. Ironically, how, how strange is it that uh, Billy Idol graced the cover of a Rolling Stone in a jockstrap, a leather jockstrap, which was then banned in many towns. It was famous. <laughs> we were famous for doing things that are slightly off-center. And, uh, but, you know, it, Billy, Billy's great. Billy's a great performer. You know, he gives everything for his performance. But I must tell you that when he came over here, he, um, I asked him, I asked him, you know, well, what are you going to need to live every week? You know, he gave me a a figure that you would have laughed at and practically nothing right and 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 i remember going to see where he was living he was lying he was had a had a mattress on the floor of an apartment that had more roaches than there were people and but he was happy he was going out every night it was new york <laughs> and you know uh, when we when i finally got out of the business about 80 at the end of 87 88 i um i told billy i said you know the one thing i don't think you should ever do he didn't pay attention to this but i said i don't think you should ever leave new york I think if you go to L.A., they're going to eat you up and spit you out because, you know, L.A. happens to be, you know, what's new when, when you know, and, and next, you know. And here's Billy Idol with a hit uh, album, with a new album coming out, good-looking guy, you know, has all the attributes for Hollywood. And I think in many ways it hurt him. I mean, that's my own opinion because I think it took that real street sense that he always had, and it, which continued in New York City that you really don't have in L.A. But you know, that's those are those. That's what's happened, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of sad. I talk to him every once in a while, but not as close as Gene and Paul. And when did Steve Stevens come into the mix, and where did you guys find him? Steve was interesting. Steve was involved with a little pop band here in New York. And uh, I went to see him a few times, and uh, I wasn't sure of the band, but I was damn sure of Steve Stevens. And so eventually, we just signed Steve, and um, not knowing what we were going to do with Steve, to be honest with you. And when Billy Idol came over, we had to put a band together for him. And I said, well, I'd like Steve Stevens to be in your band. Well, I don't know. He's, I don't know. Is he a real good guitarist? Yes, he's a good guitarist. Um, uh, well, let's see. So we start playing. Billy would come back and say, I don't, I don't think Steve Stevens. So what do you mean you don't think Steve Stevens? This is really, he's got unique ideas and everything. Man, well, plays too much. He's not real rock really. He plays too much. And, and, of course, it all worked eventually. I, I'll tell you one story about being at, the, at, the, uh, at a studio, Electric Lady, actually, and we're doing, doing the album. And um, Steve has, by that time, he's got his first guitar. Kramer. It's a Steve Stevens guitar, and it's multicolored, and he is just beaming. He is beaming. And um, we're there, and he's, oh, look at it. Oh, isn't this great, Bill? And wow, that's been incredible. And Billy walks in, and he sees this shiny new multicolored guitar, and he takes his keys out and scratches oh, it. No. Right, yeah. <laughs> and Steve is almost in tears now. You can see the tears coming to his eyes, and he turns up, why'd you do that? And Billy says, rock and roll isn't pretty. <laughs> and he just walked into the control room. And I said, oh, my God. But that was Billy. Billy was very real. Whatever was on his mind, it came out, and that's it. And that was great about him. And I, you know, I, and I think that uh, it helped a lot. But I really do think that Billy got a lot of his energy and, and his ability to come up with ideas for songs from the street and from people he hung out with and, 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 and dealt with their problems as well as his problems and, uh, you know, anything that happened. 
And I, that was the magic. That was really a magic. And, and, and when he didn't, I'll give you an example. A lot of times, because of his energy, he would get three-quarters of the way through something or 80% through, and that would be it. I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's not going to happen. I, I don't know. Well, based with Steve and Keith, the rest of the team would kind of fill in, and, uh, and which would make it work, and probably more, more powerful than most people would know. There was one story. We're out at Westlake in, in L.A., and I'm listening to tracks, and Keith says, uh, oh, we got this song called White Wedding. This was before, probably young. White Wedding, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I didn't play it for you because I think it's not going to go on the album. I said, well, I want to hear it. So we played it. So you see, it doesn't quite hold together, and I'm thinking to myself, this is just incredible. And, and so they're ready. To, Billy doesn't want to work at it anymore. Keith is frustrated. He doesn't want to work at it anymore, so... So I finally, at the, on the way out of the studio, I said, Keith, uh, everything's great. I really like it. You will do White Wedding. And he said, oh, Bill, no. I, I said, I don't care what you have to do. You bring in anyone from anywhere, I don't care. You're going to do White Wedding. And um, he brought in a keyboard player from uh, Germany that, that, uh, that Giorgio Moroda had used on, on uh, Donna Summer. And that was the key. The guy came up with a line, this and that, and it all kind of fell together, yeah. Speaking of Steve Stevens and also speaking of the fact that when you work with new artists like Evan from Fixture, you, you tell them the truth and you tell them when they're good and when they're yeah. bad, and I think that's very important. And I've got a great story that you may or may not even remember. I went out to see Van Halen with oh. Jeanette Fraley and uh-huh. Lydia Chris once, yeah. and Steve Stevens – uh, was with um, Vince Neil at the time, and Vince came off stage, and you know I think Vince Neil is great, but everybody, you know, of course, will go up to people and say, "Oh, you're so good, I love you." And you, when you were speaking to him, I overheard, and you said, "You know, Vince, you were not on tonight, and you really need to work on this." And I just thought it's great that uh, although you weren't managing him, you gave him some constructive criticism. Yeah, I mean, I, they always kind of remember that. I um, I did that to a number of artists that. Uh, uh, that remember it every once in a while. Uh, you know, when I managed uh, Billy Squire, uh, Billy, I'll tell you a story about that. Billy, uh, when we, I, I managed, uh, signed him when he was in Boston and brought him to New York. And uh, he uh, didn't want to be Billy Squire. He said, no, I need a band. I really need a band, Bill. And I said, well, okay, we'll put a band. Now, the band was Piper. Piper, right. Yeah. And uh, the truth of the matter is Billy is just super talented and has and, and bright, and he, he knows really what he wants to do. And... I think he was a little uncomfortable doing, putting himself out there first, so that's how Piper happened. When when Piper didn't really break, I told Billy, I said, I said, I think you're too strong. I think you ha- it has to be Billy Squire. You're never going to be happy under another name and with other people having as much power as you have in your group. And uh, and that's what happened. It took a while, but he finally did, and of course it was a success, but. Yeah, there are certain certain things you see in artists that you absolutely know why they have to change or why it has to to go on. Uh, the the one thing that uh, that always gets thrown at me, of course, was that I didn't sign Van Halen. And I, and I have to tell you, t- today, if I see Eddie, Eddie will turn around and won't look at me and walk away. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's the only one. But he yeah, even to today. And it was very strange. I learned a big lesson. Um, when when Gene came and said this group, I said, yeah, I heard of them. I, I heard their name in L.A. when I was in L.A. and so forth. And I said, okay, we'll fly them to New York. Big mistake. You should never, as a manager, you should never, you should never let an artist come to where you're at. You should always go to where the artist at and see with their fans and their interaction where they're most comfortable. So I brought them to New York, put them in SIR, and they were nervous. 
Um, and uh, Dave, Dave didn't really sing that well. You know, Dave never had a great voice, but he was a great rock and roller, you know, and it all worked together. And even Eddie was, you know, he's supposed to be a phenomenal guitarist. Well, I don't know. Okay, you know. And I like his guitar playing, but how about the whole thing? So I said, no. Well, of course. That came to haunt me over and over and over. And to the point where, as I said, Eddie won't talk to me till today. Uh, Anyway, so years later, I'm at Warner Brothers. And Ted Templeman and I go out for lunch. And we're talking about everything. And I'm saying, boy, I have to tell you, Ted. I pay dearly for not signing Van Halen. I mean, in many ways. And uh, he said, I didn't want to sign Van Halen. I said, what do you mean? He said, I just wanted to sign Eddie. But the band wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go without Dave. And I said, I didn't want Dave to sing. He didn't have a voice. And I'm saying, oh, my God. <clears throat> and so it, after he told me the whole story, it was almost what I had thought. But they, they, he wanted to sign him. And because he wanted Eddie so bad, he signed the whole band. And then, as you know, he did the first few singles himself. He's the one that brought the songs in and actually did them. So they were very lucky to have a great producer and have Warner Brothers behind him because not only is Ted Talman a great producer, but he was a, he is a key component at Warner. So whatever Ted wanted to do, the whole company did. So they had the best of all worlds. But I didn't get to manage them, so there. <laughs> One of the greatest rock records of all time, Quadrophenia by The Who, uh, is, from what you told me before the interview started, is going to be coming to the stage. Can you tell us about yeah. this and your involvement with it? Yeah, well, um, I have a uh, actually a gentleman from the West Coast. His name is Bill Schultz, who actually is in the medical field. But he, uh, he was from Minneapolis, and he went to the West Coast because he always wanted to be a screenwriter. And, of course, he couldn't get a job. And uh, he had worked for 3M in in uh, Minneapolis. So he went to 3M out there saying, I really need a job. And at last, they gave him a job. And he got to know the medical field. They made all sorts of apparatus, you know, for replacement of, of shoulders and elbows and hips and everything else. And he finally left that his own company and became a multimillionaire, very successful. And one day, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe you should meet this Bill Schultz. He really wants to do something. The Who is his favorite band. And he, so I went out to meet him, and he said, you know, I always thought Quadrophenia would be a great show, and I'd really want to put it on. I said, well, you know, it's not that easy, but let's discuss it. And so I became his associate producer on the project, and we actually put it on about eight, nine times uh, out on the West Coast in, in uh, L.A. and in Orange County. And then we had to get to Pete Townsend. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pete said, no, don't want to do it, don't want to do it. Uh, well, you know, and basically said, stop, that's it. I don't want you to do it anymore and so forth. So we kind of went through that whole thing. And then after a period of time, Pete came back because he had heard so many good things about the show. He said, well, maybe we'll do it. And that, then that took months and months and months and months. And it finally just came to fruition a couple of weeks ago. And it's going to open, uh, Quadrophenia is going to open outside of London on uh, May 15th, you know, 5.15, the song in the, in the and uh, next year. Uh, and we're going to bring it all through Europe. Uh, and then Pete has pretty much said that if it all works, goes together, we'll bring it to the States and go around the world with it, and then maybe even bring it to Broadway. So there's a lot of steps in between, but it actually is, it's in the works now, and it'll open uh, in May of '09. You know, Bill, it just seems like every project you get involved in, there's some great story around it, and then it goes, you know, super big. Now, are there any bands that you really believed in that didn't really take off? 
Uh, well, there are, there are things that happen. There's a, there was a band. Uh, you know, when you have a company, you have other executives in it, and, and they have ideas about what they'd like to sign. Uh, New England was a band that right. uh, yeah, that my uh, head of promotion said, hey, I think we should look at them. And, uh, and then Ron Luxemburg, who was starting a new label, Infinity, with Universal, uh, with tons of money by, behind him, and said, I want to sign them. Chrysalis also wanted to sign them, by the way. And... Um, and I said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And they had a couple songs I thought were very good. Uh, this, is a good this is a good lesson to learn. The band wasn't getting along with each other when we signed them. But they had made a pact never to let me know. So it was strained from the beginning, and yet they had this deal, and they had this great deal, and everything else, and Quinn Management was managing them and everything. Uh, when, when Infinity, everything fell apart at once. The band wasn't getting along. It finally started showing. Infinity was having problems. Ron was having problems with the amount of money he spent from Universal, and they were kind of shutting him down. I, it was kind of like a disaster all at once. You know, it just imploded. So that was one. Uh, and then there was a band that, that, that I really loved from, uh, from uh, San Antonio called Toby Bow. Just an incredible band, a country rock band. Uh, and... Uh, we signed up to RCA, and RCA thought, boy, this could be a huge band for us. Brought them to Europe, did everything else. We got through the uh, first album. We're going to the second album and stuff. And uh, uh, the, lead, the lead writer in the group, which was the guitarist, who wrote the songs, really very good, says, I, um, I really don't like this, and I don't like touring, and I really don't you know, think this is it. I'm going to go back to San Antonio. So he goes back to San Antonio and literally gets a job working at a record store. And again, it was kind of like, whoa, uh, yeah, hello, what, what hello. Uh, there's the guts of the group gone, you know. Uh, and uh, it was one of those crazy moments. And uh, at the same time, this was happening at the same time when Kiss was kind of uh, going through, are we going to stay together? Aren't we going to? What's going to happen? Is Ace leaving? If not, Peter's to this and that. Gene and Paul are unhappy. Da, 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 da. I said, oh, boy. So uh, I have to say that with all the turmoil going on at the time, I didn't really try to save it, especially with the key key guy in the group gone. You know, try to, Then you're into finding songs, and, and if you don't have this and if you don't have that. But they were a phenomenal group, and I thought they could have been a major, major success. That was, that was really probably my biggest disappointment. You know, there was one, I'll give you one other story. Boy, you're getting everything out of me. Yeah, I don't have to do the book now. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I managed Man of War for a short time, and, uh, and it was signed to EMI Records. And uh, they're now on, on a major tour, and they're opening up, and we're in an arena in, I think, Houston or Dallas. I forgot which one it was. And the head of A&R from EMI comes out and uh, wants to discuss things and everything. So they play. They come off. We're up in the dressing room, and he's telling them what he thinks has to be done. And the band says, screw you. We don't have to do that. We're not going to do it. So I'm thinking to myself, well, that's the wrong way to handle this. But I, and I'm trying to calm everyone down. I walk out of the dressing room, and the head of A&R says, they're off the label. Wow. <laughs> that quick. Meeting. One meeting, they're off the label. Oh, no. I don't want to see them again. They're off the label. <laughs> oh. I, so I had to walk back into the dressing room, 
and say, well, guys, I think you might have taken this a bit far. Well, what do you mean, Bill? I, I, we don't have to do that. I said, well, no, you don't have to do that because you're off the label. So that was, you know, you never know. And, you know, life is kind of a, a ride anyway, you know, it's, and it, uh, that was kind of a surprise. So everything, everything went from shooting sky high and having everyone behind them to everything just collapsing. So, yeah. When you were talking about bands like New England who were not getting along with yeah. each other and, you know, when certain members want to leave and it happened to Kiss, what I think was one of the best ideas, and I'm thinking it was probably your idea, that helped Kiss stay together for so long was having them split all of the money. Did you come up with that? Yeah. I forced that at the beginning. I always felt that, that and I still believe today, although, believe me, I haven't been able to to do that with other groups. That that the only thing that could destroy them was money. If if one person was making so much more money, so I made them split everything equally. Now in the years to come, when 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 they when Peter left and then Ace, of course Gene and Paul were never going to do that again. And of course they were the real key to the group anyway. But but nevertheless, um, yeah. And I think it helped. And of course when they when you start hearing even even when they split everything equally, you know when when all of them had pretty big money in their pocket. It became like, do we have to do another tour right now? And, uh, and the idea was to do solo albums to kind of get let them get out of their system, each one of them, um, you know, what they wanted to do, whatever their whatever their hang-ups they thought in their head or their music they really wanted to do, whatever that might be. Let's do the solo albums. And initially we were going to do one solo album at a time, one, one album at a time. And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, that's kind of, I'm not sure we can do that, Neil. Neil Bogart is what And I said, you know, one at a time, I, you know, I think maybe we should see if we can do them all at a time. And, and Neil said yes. Probably wasn't the right idea, but nevertheless, he said yes. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're um, about to put him out. And one distributor, I think it was Handelman at the time, called uh, the head of sales, uh, called uh, Casablanca and said, we'll take a million units. <laughs> Well, that just doesn't, didn't happen. Neil went absolutely out of his mind. They were taking a quarter of a million of each of the albums, you know. And Neil just went. I mean, he would, it was like heaven had blessed Casablanca, <laughs> you know. No one orders a million units, and um, so he decides. Well, if Handelman's ordering a million, let's press up a couple more million because everyone's going to want them. So what happened was, and this is a great. This is the story in the industry that you know we. Uh, uh, we shipped uh, gold and everything came back platinum, you know. And uh, and what would happen is there were so many units out there. You'd walk into a record store and Kiss albums were piled four or five feet high from the floor, all Kiss, you know. And and even if you, even if you bought twenty of them, It'd it still, still looked like it, that wasn't right. selling. Yeah. Wow, and so it was a disaster initially. Now they all went. Platinum, eventually, yeah, but but you know, it really was. It was the laughing stock of the industry. You know, shipping gold, coming back platinum. You know, you can imagine, and so we all had to live through that. But um, but you know, and I think most labels uh, would have really had a rough time. Neil Bogart was very special. He was one of these record music people who knew music. You know, he was a singer himself. Had his own single out years before. And he really kind of knew it and felt it. And uh, two things that were great about Neil. One is his word was his bond. There's a lot of things that Neil and I shook hands on that you didn't need a piece of paper for. And uh, there was even one time when Neil and I made a decision to do something. And uh, I went down to talk to his uh, in-house lawyer 
about just put send me a memo on it. And he tried to change the deal. And uh, and I got Neil on the phone, and Neil said, "Let me let me talk to him." And he just he just laid into him. He said, "When I give my word, that's it. Period." So that was one thing. And the other thing was that Neil was always thinking about new ideas, and and we'd talk about it no matter what it was. And and if we just thought it was crazy enough or wild enough or that it would make, get noticed, we would do it, and even if it costs money, and that that most people wouldn't. You know, wouldn't do. You know, and there was a time when Warner's event gave Neil his first monies to start Casablanca. Oh, this is another story. Uh, the um, and, but they didn't like Kiss. Uh, like most people in the industry, they thought this was just foolishness. And we went out to play a showcase for Warner's at the uh, uh, at a hotel in in L.A. and. Um, uh, they saw him, and uh, Kiss was nervous, and the sound system was just horrible, and they sounded, they played too loud, and it was just noise, basically. So, I mean, I, I knew it wasn't good, but didn't really say anything at that point. And I, um, uh, and what happened is that one is the the from the president's office sent a memo, an internal internal memo saying, saying don't work Kiss. We really believe in Neil Bogart. He's going to come up with some great artist, but just. We're not going to work Kiss. Well, by that time, Neil had schmoozed everyone at Warner's, so someone passed him the memo. He was furious. So he walked into jo- to, uh, to Mo Austin and Joe Smith's office. They were co-presidents of Warner's at the time. said, how can you do this to me? You're undermining my company before you begin. I, I mean, you know, and uh, I think they talked about, well, maybe they should take off their makeup, maybe this. Neil called and said, well, Warner's doesn't like their makeup. Well, they take off their makeup, and we were... We were we were working on the show at the old Fillmore, the Fillmore East. It had closed down, and we had taken it over. And I said, Neil, it's not going to happen, but I'll ask them because you asked me, and I'll ask them. And I asked the guys, and of course we all said no. And and I called Neil back and said, no, they don't want to take off the makeup. So he went back to Warner's and said no. Basically worked out a deal to leave Warner's. And mortgaged his home to keep Casablanca going. Yeah, all around Kiss. There's so many stories around Kiss you can't imagine. Yeah. On the same tip, didn't you once finance a tour on your Amex yeah. card? Yeah. Yeah, well, when Neil left and he mortgaged his home to keep the company going, basically there wasn't any money. I mean, just to keep the company going. And he had brought a lot of friends from New York who moved out, had homes and kids and families. So he went he went to, uh, to pay their salaries and everything and... And so we came to a tour. We came to a tour, and uh, there was no money. So I put it on my American Express card, and I'll make this quick. The uh, I had never spent more than a hundred bucks, maybe, I mean, that was a lot uh, to spend on my Amex card uh, for myself. And and the month I did the tour was twenty five thousand. And uh, I remember the call when they called and said, "Mr. O'Coin, do you expect to pay this?" Absolutely. Yeah, I had. And a couple of weeks later, I called and said, "Oh my God, this oh, oh all these problems." Uh, but don't worry, I won't use my Amex card, but I will pay the bill. And believe it or not, they never took the Amex card away from me. Today, they'd be gone like that. And um, and about a month later, we got our first big check. So we went from being completely broke. I mean, I mean broke. To getting two million dollars, so wow, yeah. great story. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us and some great, great stories. And we'd love to have you back at some point yeah. for more great stories. Yeah, absolutely. We could just sit here all day, and uh, you've got to write a book. Well, I've been asked a couple of times. I haven't. I, my line to most publishers is, "I have to wait for one more person to die." So, yeah, <laughs> all right. Anyway.
Thanks, Bill. You're Thank you very much, Bill, and we will definitely see you soon.